everyday peacemakers are not professional humanitarians. We're everyday people who are learning to see God and ourselves in others. We're daring to step off the road of comfort and immerse into reality. In the face of injustice, conflict, and violence, we are choosing to contend, not by getting even, but by getting creative in love. Everyday peacemakers are everyday people who are embedded within a world divided by difference, and these are our stories. Welcome to Everyday Peacemaking, a global immersion podcast hosted by Haley Mitsui, Jer Swigert, and myself, John Huckins. And as always, we're going to jump into the conversation with a question of the week. Did you play an instrument or instruments growing up? Question mark. Would love to hear about that experience. Well, I mean, I think all of us started with the recorder, didn't we? Ah, uh, I mean, you you start with point. the recorder. Once you start to get once you start to get good, you can play it out of your nose. That's when you know you've really arrived. Get the Ode to Joy going, and then, uh, boy, I really I wanted to play the trumpet. I was inspired by uh, by drum and bugle corps uh, and, and marching band and all those things. So I took up the trumpet, the shiny gold trumpet at the ripe old age of sixth grade. <laughs> I must've been 10 or 11 and played that baby all the way through sophomore year of high school. Yeah, you I did. Bet. Yeah. Do you think you could pick it back up and, Oh, uh, you know, the old embouchure has, uh, not nearly in shape like it was, but my, my highlight, the highlight of my career was standing on the 50-yard line of Camp Randall Stadium, which all of our listeners know knows as uh, the finest football stadium okay. in the country in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, I stood on the 50-yard line and played a solo. <gasps> Whoa! Wow! That's impressive. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, and then you retired, I assume. I, I didn't figure I could go anywhere from there, so I, I shut her down. What about you, John? Oh, well, I, I was raised in a household of musicians. My mom is a piano teacher, still is to this day. So I was forced to learn the piano and I uh, was told it was a great skill to acquire early on. And I just could not get into the flow. My older sisters were crushing it and started teaching their own piano. And I was just black sheep in that world. And then uh, freshman year of high school, I heard that the marching band was going to Hawaii. Oh, and one of my great <laughs> dreams was to surf in Hawaii. So I'm like, I've got to learn a freaking instrument. My sisters had been superstars in the band. The band director loved them and I was the brother. So obviously I must be good. I'm, I wasn't, and I just said I played the saxophone. You just said it. For two years, I played the alto sax in the marching band, and I made it to first chair, although Whoa. it's because the band was so big and I had a good last name. I still to the, I don't think I ever learned more than five notes. I just wow. would I would puff my <laughs> lips up and move my fingers, and he never actually like sat me down and said, I need to hear how you're doing, or else I would have never, ever made it to first chair. Wow. I can assure you that. Wow. But I went to Hawaii and I got to surf and then I quit (laughs) and I haven't played a saxophone since. I feel like my my thing with saxophonists is they're always sucking on their reeds. It's just gross. Yeah. You got to keep the reed, you know, ugh. Gets a little moldy under there. Yeah, it does. It's just gross. Just saliva and mold. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, obviously started with the recorder, Uh, played a flute in uh, elementary school and- Flautist. um, and then I, I'm a me, me, me vocalist. I'd say my vocals are my instrument. Uh, I, I also started playing guitar in high school and I still play that. But I, I must say, do love, do love the music, the musical instruments. I mean, quick follow up. Did you ever get into the piccolo or no? <laughs> no. That's advanced. No, the, no, the, okay. the band wasn't really my scene. Band wasn't my scene. As, as expressed on a previous or maybe post episode, depending on where this goes, I was under the illusion that I was popular and popular kids, you know, weren't in the band. 
in hindsight, it wasn't popular, so I might as well just have been in the band, but you know. And for those of you who are listening in who uh, it was the popular thing to oh, be yeah. in the band, that wasn't her case at her particular <laughs> school. We we see you. Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. And we bless you. And you're smart. We're going to do something a little bit different with this episode. Uh, periodically throughout these seasons, we're going to we're just going to feature one of our Global Immersion teammates, and we're going to have a conversation about something that feels really pressing to us. Today, uh, you're going to hear uh, a conversation between the three of us that really features Haley and Haley's journey into the contemplative side of peacemaking. And what an important conversation it is for all of us in these moments where uh, where division and conflict and injustice feels overwhelming. And we have to be thinking about how it is that we're going to do this for the long haul. And uh, Haley invites us into uh, an ancient stream of the contemplative, uh, the contemplative life, and it is such a riveting conversation. So we're going to turn our attention to that right now. Hales, one of the things that we uh, we talk about together all the time as a team is that every like there's no one template for an, an everyday peacemaker. Uh, that everybody is bringing their unique skill set, their unique disposition into this work. And one of the things that we've seen really raise up. Uh, to the surface for you is this contemplative side, this interior formation um, component of everyday peacemaking. And uh, we've seen it come to life inside of you. And now we're seeing it inform uh, the work that we're doing as an organization as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about this contemplative peacemaking, kind of where where that value really raised to the surface for you and how it's making a difference in your life right now? Yeah, I... I say contemplative peacemaking, even framing in that way is really new for me. But then when I look back at kind of the, my journey, I see little guide posts towards that throughout my whole life. But I can point to one really specific moment after leaving an organization that I'd been at. And I, when I left, like literally my adrenal glands were shot. My body's like hormones were all out of whack. I like couldn't get out of bed. I was so tired. And so I hit like just incredible burnout um, at 25. And I remember thinking, I know that being engaged in issues of justice and injustice is why I am here. But if I can't do that without like killing myself or like depleting my body to such degrees that I can't function anymore, like this, it felt like a, I didn't know what to do with that. Like the only way I knew how to engage um, in the world was at just this hundred miles an hour. Um, and so when I, when I hit that wall, it felt like this identity crisis. I grew up in a, in a evangelical context and I went to a Christian school and on my letterman's jacket was, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so that, I don't think at that point in my life, that was actively how I was thinking, but it's very much still the subtext. I think of my relationship with God was like, if I was in a good place with God and I was doing good work in the world, then God would be sustaining me and he's not. So what does that say about me or what does that say about God? So I was sitting in my car where I feel like a lot of my transformational interactions with God happen in my car. And I just felt God putting on my heart, just take one, one more step. And I want to say a few weeks later when I was on a cross country road trip and I stayed at a friend's house in Albuquerque and he's the director of Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation, who I'd never heard of. And and so I, that through my friend Michael was introduced to the contemplative Christian 
practice and stream, which I truly had no awareness that it existed. Through engaging that in a few, for a few years, I was like, ah, I don't feel like people are actually being active in the world, though. And then it was like, okay, so this is a pu- piece of the puzzle. And then, you know, being in a lot of activist circles, you see a lot of the systems of like violence and oppression that we're trying to dismantle, but we haven't dismantled in ourselves. And so this important work that we're doing, we just end up changing the form of these abusive systems because we haven't interrogated them in ourselves. So then you're like, okay, there, there's a piece. And I think after years of kind of fine tuning and then also being introduced um, to global immersions work, being introduced to the work of the Mystic Soul Project, which is this incredible um, mystic organization um, that I work with that centers people of color spirituality. It's like all these little just breadcrumbs that led me to what I now settle in as a contemplative activist or contemplative peacemaking. It is incorporating both of the posture of a contemplative and the posture of an activist, but mostly recognizing that the state of your interior world informs the state of the exterior world. And so my hope in contemplative peacemaking is for people in this, in our American goal-oriented, external, validation-centered world to do the hard work of looking themselves in the mirror, understanding what peace looks like in their own soul, starting there, and then trusting that that journey will lead them into action and peacemaking in the exterior world. That's my hope and conviction is, is the peacemaking in our spirits um, is how we can be the best, most effective peacemakers in, in, in the world that we share. Hales, I'm, I'm drawn to earlier in your story, you talk about kind of the white knuckle adventure of working for an organization where it just leads to breakdown because it's on this metric of, of success, of doing, and all of that being couched as, uh, as God is the one who's either going to show up um, and bless this thing or else I'm, or maybe it's on me. It's either an indictment of God or on me if I break down, um, which I think is a common narrative within Christian institutions and Christianity as a whole, especially in the United States, that I'm, I'm doing God's work. So either God's going to bail on me or I just, I'm not cut out for it. I'm too weak or whatever it might be. How did this journey you went on inform how you began to rethink about God? Wow, so much. I mean, I think, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this who grew up in in a yeah in a more evangelical context. Is that I used to have a very Santa Claus view of God, and so it was God up on the throne um, in heaven slash North Pole, and I I had these lists of things that I wanted, and if um, if I was good, then God gave me those things. And if I didn't get them, then I had to assume that I was bad. I think what I, I didn't know how much I had like dehumanized myself. That view of God is dehumanizing to me as an image bearer of God. I also very much bought into this idea that Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. And so there was no sacrifice that I was allowed to avoid because nothing that I would face would ever be as bad as 
being, you know, crucified. I mean, I remember Bible teachers in high school being like, it's so, you know, irreverent to say anything is excruciating because that is, you know, from the the verb of crucifying and and you will never be uh, experience the type of pain that Jesus exp- experienced for you. And so there's this guilt that someone went through such pain to save me from myself. And so I can never say this is too much or this is too hard because nothing I will ever face will be as hard as the sacrifice that God, that God gave in the form of his son. And so, but I think where that is, is there's just a huge disconnect. Like that wasn't the intent of Jesus's sacrifice so that we could live a life in this shadow of, of guilt. It was a liberating sacrifice, but I don't think I ever experienced a liberation from God in my youth. I think when I got into my late twenties, thirties, and started to go on this contemplative path, the way that my view of God changed was that liberation. It was this expanding of God so much bigger and and greater than a person on a throne, a Zeus, Santa God looking down and judging. It was the embodiment of compassion and of justice and of love. When I'm spending time like tending to my interior, I notice these characteristics of God that I also have. Like, wait, what does that say about me? What does that say about the presence that I can have in the world, the impact that I can have in the world? Like, you know, I grew up hearing the like, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But more than that, I heard like, you are inherently flawed. I think the contemplative path was my liberation from that and actually seeing myself as this divine image bearer of God who, um, who can move through the world and interact with people from that place instead of a place of, of shame. And um, I think trying to maybe overcompensate for being this fallen person, this fallen creature. I think, I think what you just got done articulating is going to be very illuminating for our listenership. Like, like our friends are listening in going, ah, I think I maybe was groomed into that understanding of God. And I, I want to connect that to, then this idea of the contemplative life. Um, if I think that God views me in any way other than beloved, then my contemplative time, uh, you know, more, maybe more conservative Christian spaces that would be called like my devotions or whatever. I wonder how we've repurposed those under as like, I have to prove to God that I was worth his sacrifice. <laughs> And so we do this stuff as like a checkoff to seduce God's affection rather than to rest in the fact that we are the full recipients of God's affection already. And so I wonder, as this shift has happened for you, how has it changed kind of the reason for your contemplative practices and what is it doing to you? When I first started doing um, Centering Prayer, which is really one of the cornerstones in the Christian contemplative tradition, I heard someone, and I wish I could remember who, but I heard someone describe it as the gaze of a mother looking at her newborn child in in, in the crib. Mm. So when we pray or when we do devotions, it's often this like, I have to learn, I have to study, I have to do Contemplative practice is just about being. 
And like, mm-hmm. what would what would change for people if for 20 minutes a day they sat and felt God's eyes like a mother on a newborn child? Mm-hmm. You can't help but love yourself more. You can't help but forgive yourself more. So I think when I first started my contemplative practice, it, it was a replacement for devotions. It was like, out with the old and in with the new. But the beauty of the contemplative practices, like if you do them with rhythm and with consistency, they will change you whether you want them to or not, simply by learning how to be instead of doing. Hales, too, I wonder how that's connected to to living as peacemakers. You know, I mean, to be a peacemaker is, is to be people who are at the center of pain and brokenness and conflict participating in God's restoration. And it can be a pretty rough environment. And I think a lot of, of uh, well-intentioned peacemakers get in the midst of that space and we just become mirrors of the pain we see in the world because we aren't, like you said, we're not dealing with our own stuff. So we begin to just propel the same kind of vitriolic hatred at our quote unquote other. Uh, how much is this, this, contemplative way of life inform how we show up, how you show up in the midst of such polarizing seasons that we're in, not just this election election season we're in right now, as you're listening to this, but just as a whole. I mean, how is it shaping how you see your other? Yeah, I think it's pretty uncomfortable because the, for me, the more that contemplation has been integrated into my life, the more it feels like where I end and you begin doesn't really exist. So we create all of these boundaries that separate us from others. And we all have a million different ways that we distinguish ourselves. But when you are pursuing like um, a relationship with your true self you see that that is who you are, void of all of those identifiers. But the hard thing is, is that we live in a world where we are judged by our identifiers, where our lives are sometimes risked because of our identifiers. So for me, I think it has softened my heart to who I see as my other. It has strengthened my conviction of of humanizing people no matter what, because I, I see and sense that when you, the dehumanizing of another is the dehumanizing of myself, but I don't know the total answer (laughs) because I think that we live in a world where some lives are valued more than others. And so to move through the world, trying to be like, we are all one um, while I think on a foundational level, it's true. It is not the actual world that we live in. When, when we all first went into quarantine, um, I was like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I, I've never experienced a pandemic before. I'm, I, you know, this isolation on top of all of the division that we are experiencing, Um, It felt really overwhelming, um, but I felt like the one thing I did know I could do was create space for people to be with themselves, to be with each other, and to be with God, and trust that out of that time, like, that God would, would put on our hearts, either collectively or individually, what ours was to do in these times. 
Haley, I'm, I'm so grateful for the reminder you've given us today uh, of the necessity, the invitation, the long journey back home, which is ultimately a journey back to being who we are, we're created to be all along, uh, to, to understand our belovedness, our identity, to live out of that, that space as peacemakers in such a conflicted, polarized world is one of the greatest and most challenging gifts. And you've given us your story. You've given us tools and footholds for that. And so as we look towards our family members, our teammates, uh, the politics of our world, may we be moving out of a contemplative place of knowing who we are and enter right into the center of the conflict as peacemakers. So friends, God's restoration is happening. Now go participate in it and know that you're not alone. For more information on the work of Global Immersion, visit globalimmerse.org. Music in this episode was by King's Kaleidoscope and The Eagle and Child. This podcast is produced by Global Immersion and Adventure Vision Productions. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate us, and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your excellent podcasts.